everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of April 15th, Tax Week 2022. I'm Charles Maker. I'm here with Todd Blankenship, cinematographer. Hey, how's it going? Uh, Just me and you, Charles, today, huh? Yeah, well, I think George Edelman might be dropping in for the back half when we get to ask No Film Schools, but we're going to be kicking off Tech Heavy, Fast and Furious, in the warm-up to a returned NAB. We're starting to see some tech stories drop. NAB is in two weeks, and and usually you start to see some people like getting a little ahead of the news cycle. So we got a whole bunch to cover. Airy has updated their stabilizer systems to Generation 2, which is sort of an interesting thing to see. DJI released a microphone, which <laughs> we got to talk about that. Siri, Siri, you, Siri, you, Siri, Are you talking about the lenses? Yeah, Siri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how yeah, I'm supposed to be saying that. I yeah. should be watching more YouTube videos. Siri <laughs> drops some anamorphic full frame lenses for fifteen hundred bucks a pop, which God bless. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy these exist. And then TLS has dropped the Vega Cine Primes. And we should talk about that. So we got four tech stories. And then we have two Ask No Film Schools. This is going to be a fast and a furious, a high-paced. It's going to be like early 80s Lakers. No more of these slow positions. It's going to be it's going to be showtime. You can tell I've been watching Winning Time on HBO. <laughs> and I'm very inspired. I guess, like, am I Kareem and your magic? Um, I'll take it. All I'll right. take it. I don't, uh, I don't fully understand. But I, you know what, man? I like your energy. And, and I'm here for it. Well, I'm I'm occasionally grumpy and slightly older than you. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna roll with that in that okay. in, in our dynamic. Okay. First up this week, Aeroflex. So everybody forgets that Airy also makes a stabilizer. When we talk about stabilizer, there's like the two worlds. There's like steady cam world of like gravity balanced stabilizers, and then there's you know, gimbal balance stabilizers like Movi and Ronin and all of the various others. Aerie makes some pretty nifty systems, the Trinity system and the Artemis system. And frankly, people tend to sleep on them because Aerie makes so much stuff. And I feel like Alexa and Skypanel are are like so dominant because Alexa and Skypanel are so dominant that I feel like people sometimes sleep on like, no, Aerie stabilizer is also very, very good. The big thing that they have going sort of a step beyond other stabilizer systems are they have a whole lot of systems built into place that allow for more off-axis movement. So if you want to do something, you know, like the classic example is like the pool table shot. You want the head of the camera to like be able to go out over the pool table. You need a head that you can sort of turn sideways and it keeps the level up at the camera up above the donkey box. And that's always been something that's been sort of out there with the Trinity system. The big So is the Trinity, is that the thing where it like the camera rotates independently of the steady cam? What is that thing called? The 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 part that the ca- the actual like stick that goes up and down. What I I cannot think of that word right now. So the stick that goes up and down is called the sled. Because it originally sled. looked more like a sled. Ah. The top of your sled's a donkey box. Okay. For no real reason, just because <laughs> it's a donkey box. And then usually you mount the camera straight to the donkey box, which is sort of what the Artemis system is. But then if you want the, it looks like two rings. Yeah, 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 can, yeah. Okay. It's these two rings that go on top of the donkey box. The camera goes in the two rings and the two rings, as you, if you go off level, it keeps it level inside. Alien Revolution are the people who really launched this like 15 years ago with the AR head. 
but Airy are the big people who are like making it at scale and right. at like insanely high. You know, Airy doesn't make anything that's not just like the most engineered thing in the history of things. And you know, what's nice about, you know, if you go for an Airy Artemis, it's really easy to upgrade it to a Trinity 2. So, you know, Artemis and Trinity share a whole bunch of stuff in their platform. And then, you know, the Trinity 2 thing, it's a lot about data and battery. So one of the things that Ari's been really pushing lately is 24 volt battery standards. Because we're moved people forget that one of the things with a steady cam is if you can, you want the batteries at the bottom of the sled. It makes everything balance more easily. Mm-hmm. And Ari's been pushing the 24 volt B mount. And it's not just the mount, the whole system has to be ready for it. Like if you try and put 24 volts into a system that's only ready for 12 volts, you'll like cook stuff. And so the big revolution you're seeing here is twofold. First off, the whole thing is 12G SDI, which means that, you know, it can do HD, it can do 4K. Theoretically, that could mean 8K could flow through the system in 12G SDI. And then the combination of that, and it's a full 24-volt system, are the things that are sort of designed to make it a longer lifetime investment. Because those are the things that make you upgrade systems like this. Right. Right? Like, the fundamental design of Steadicam style gimbals hasn't changed dramatically. There's like little revisions. But if you want to fly a 24 volt camera and you have a 12 volt sled, you're sort of out of luck. Because what you can do is you can leave the battery up on top, but then you've got extra weight up there and that makes it harder to balance. And your Steadicam person bitches at you and you're like, well, yeah, I know, but it's a whole thing. So it's nice to see how hard Aerie is pushing 24 volts. So, yeah, and that's that that new battery that they just dropped, right? The the B mount thing. That's that's yeah. that that's like completely new. Whatever that the latest uh, ca- camera system they came out with too as well, right? So they they're just kind of doing a sweeping change to to all their sort of camera accessories and cameras, I guess. All right, now, please tell of, me I didn't miss Airy dropping the new camera system. The, the new camera system didn't come out, did it? They definitely announced it, but I it might they announced not be, it was coming. Yeah. I think you're right, but I mean, okay. I, no, I, I mean, know like, that they had you almost give me a heart attack. Like, as a person who <laughs> writes about cinematography, no, yeah, I think, I for think a living, just, they mostly announced the battery. But I do, I mean, they de- they definitely announced they announced the a new 4K coming. Super 35 camera is coming. Yes, yeah, but, yeah, we're, but, yeah, like, we're talking about the same thing. Okay, they, they didn't they didn't already drop it? No, because yeah, like that, like that's like heart attack level stuff for like cinematography nerd, where you're like, yeah, that new Alexa that came out, and I was like. What? Yeah, yeah, dude, I just did a job with it last week. What's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. We, we, it was very. I mean, we all missed things in the pandemic. But <laughs> right. if I had missed a new Alexa, I would have. I, I wouldn't want anyone at my day job to know I had missed it. <laughs> so yeah, no. Aerie is pushing really hard on twenty-four volt. So they have a whole new battery mount, the B mount, and you know, there's adapters for B mount to go backwards to gold and V mount, the older mounts that we use. And frankly, you know, there's that whole. If you guys don't know the cartoon XKCD. It is a great cartoon. It's really wonderful, full of nerd shit. And there's that great cartoon on XKD CD that's like, everyone is frustrated that there's too many standards. So we're going to make, you know, there's 14 standards and we're going to make one standard to rule them all. And, you know, what that ends up meaning is there's now 15 standards. Yeah, it's a new standard, yeah. So I understand some people might be like, another battery standard. But I will tell you this, as someone who's looking at my, I have like a book bag full of batteries. And in that book bag full of batteries, there's like six V mounts and four gold mounts. <laughs> um, and I'm right. like, I would way rather just own 10 of one mount. Now is the moment. The 24-volt transition 
is a really great moment to get out there and say, hey guys, we're going to a new standard where we're going to be getting a lot more power through these connectors. Here it is, B-mounts, we're doing it, we're Ari, we're out front, and I really respect them for trying to do that. And I think if they can pick up a couple of other collaborators, and when they launched B-mount, they launched it with a whole bunch of other people. I think we're in a good place to maybe not, you know, hopefully in 10 years, my battery, I mean, hopefully in 10 years, I won't have a battery backpack, but if I'm still having a battery backpack and we're not all like powered by the sun, uh, right. I hope it is all just one mount. So yeah, I mean, this is a nice evolution for Mary. It's always a strategic decision when you're a brand, like what do I announce physically at NAB? Because so much news comes out at NAB. So you don't want to wait and do all of your press releases that day because some of it might get caught in the churn and like not get covered. This feels very much like a two weeks out from NAB release. For sure. Whereas like, it's a lot of great stuff. And then anyone who's at NAB is going to be able to get hands on time with it. This feels like my first official, like, oh, NAB is about to happen. Announced. Yeah, there's like those things that you you hear about leading up to NAB where you're like, oh, I can't wait to like look at that in person. And it, it usually is these kind of like stabilizer-y kind of things. And then, you know, obviously when you get to NAB, usually that's when the, the new camera systems drop. And I'm sure that's when the hopefully maybe the new the new RE camera will drop. And, you know, I'm very curious because it's it's been relatively quiet for a while in terms of new camera systems other than like Canon and stuff like that. But I know Fuji's got to have something up their sleeve. That's my big, like the big thing that I've got my eye on is like, I can't wait to see whatever Fuji's been cooking up. I mean, I've already started building the camera mount in my office for when I buy an X-H2, which yeah, isn't exactly. even announced yet. But like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, and then the X-H1 will go over here and then the X-H2 will go over here. And like, it's not here. It doesn't yeah. exist. <laughs> but I am... I'm like ready for it in my heart. I feel like they got to have a new XT something, XT5. It would be sick. The rumor on the street is there is an XH2 coming, that we will see XH2 will be the first of their next gen. Okay. That's the that's the rumor on the internet. And we know the internet never lies. Yeah, never. Yeah, it's crazy that it's coming up. Like it it's it's weird cuz it it keeps feeling like, "Oh, we're we're having these events now." Great. So it seems like we might actually have like a, a pretty significant one this year. Like I'm sure Blackmagic's got some stuff going on. I'm sure Sony's got some stuff. DJI coming out with microphones. Yeah. Way to pivot <laughs> to the next story, DJ. I mean, right? so here's my through line between these two announcements. With little companies, they often tend to have one big thing they're announcing a year or two. DJI is now getting to be close to as big as Aerie. Meaning, like, if you're airy, your strategy is we're going to put out a couple things in the week or two ahead of time to remind you we exist, and then maybe we'll announce some big stuff at the show, too. They spread it out over a series of weeks. So it sort of, like, builds some buzz ahead of time. I think we're still going to see some other DJI stuff at the show, but I think what we're seeing here with the microphones, which, like, is a weird choice for DJI? Like, I, I don't get it. It does kind understand. of boggle the mind a little bit. Well, um, I... The argument, I think, just to argue in DJI's thought yeah. process, is that it's wireless microphones, and they have a large amount of wireless expertise from the wireless control of their drones and now the 4D. So I think the argument here is more, is less like we're microphone experts and more we're wireless experts. And I think that is the argument. For sure. Honestly, a lot of the other wireless microphone systems out there you know, they're not very reliable. And so there is definitely a lot of actually, there's a few that I haven't gotten to use yet. But I mean, I've, I'm still just rocking the Sennheiser G2. Like I, I still just have like the old school 
pack that I use, but it's like I I keep kind of almost investing in one of these, like like what the road go, whatever they those are. And I think Deity has a really good one that I haven't gotten to use yet. But yeah, the thing that I I find kind of peculiar about this is that in all of the marketing materials, they have the the microphone itself like clipped to their shirt. And it just like I don't know about you, but like I avoid even lav mics because I don't like it to be visible. And if I do have it visible, I like, I try to tape it under the collar or something like that. And, uh, yeah, this is just like, I mean, they're definitely, I can't decide, I guess they're going for more of a vlogger type user who doesn't really mind having a, a big, uh, I don't know. It looks like a beeper tied to their collar. <laughs> All right, you get to be Kareem now. Cause you just said beeper, which is definitely the older person. <laughs> well, like, you, you, if it you, does if look you've like ever beeped though. the drug dealer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I just I'm, watched Castaway last night, so I have I have beepers on my mind. I think. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> fair. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's not quite as big as the beeper I had in the '90s. I remember in the '90s, whenever I would start dating someone new, I had like a little printout of like beeper codes that I would give them of like, here's how uh, you you communicate with me via beeper codes, which is always super fun. <laughs> I found one of those when I moved a couple of years ago, and I was like, how do I still have this thing from the '90s? Wow. So uh, you know, things you kids will never understand. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, they're totally going vlogger with this or vlogger or however you want to say it. I will say this. I have a couple of clients in the vlog space that I do like consulting with and they all love the road go. And I think a lot of people buy like the road go. I think it's been a big hit. I think it is a smart move for DJI to be like, Ooh, the road go is like a move. And what's interesting about the road go to people is not the microphone quality. Like I think of, you know, like I still, I both have the DAD TRS set, although I use it as much for time code as I do for wireless audio. And I still have my Sennheiser G3s and I use them only for audio because they have no other features. Whereas the nice thing about the deities is that it's like, it's your time code recorder. It's your internal recorder. Right. Like, technology is improved. It's fun. But like, like I saw the road go and initially, and it was like, oh, I'm never going to get those because I didn't think about it as a vlogging space. Although now I'm doing all this YouTube stuff and I'm like, oh yeah, I could totally see the perks of this. But my worry about road go is the, everything I hear about it is wireless audio stuff is like, oh, well, you know, there are cutouts and things like that. And I'm like, okay, well, so DJI is sticking this on the 2.4 gigahertz, basically Wi-Fi frequency, and they're claiming 800 feet of transmission, which is way more than I think the Rode Go is claiming. And so I think that they're really pushing like the wireless reliability. And so like, yeah, maybe the microphone isn't going to sound as good as one made by Rode, who are like more experts in the microphone space. But if you're like going out and YouTubing, or frankly, I mean, a lot of the stuff I do, I'm like wandering around behind the scenes on set. Like 
going to talk about like what I'm doing in this setup or whatever, like I was doing in that wheelie boys video you edited last summer. Like I'm like, right. you know, I wouldn't mind having a big lump on my chest if it gave me more confidence. The audience was actually making it. Yeah. Well, and, the, and these, these are the folks who uh, make products where you can f- fly a little tiny flying camera a mile away and see everything you're doing perfectly yeah. fine. So like they can, they can handle that. They can probably handle some audio pretty, pretty yeah. reliably. And that's, I think, you know, it's that interesting thing. I mean, I'll admit, like, I'll just date myself again. I'm still, and we're like 15 years into YouTube. I'm still getting used to the idea of like, oh, different tools for different jobs. And like, it's insane to say that aloud. But my my default assumption whenever I read a press release or anything new is I still think about like, okay, well, when I'm working on a big narrative production with a full crew, does this fit in? And it's like, is that all of my work? No, it's not even a majority of my work at this point. So like, you know, it takes me a second to see this and be like, oh no, but DJI is really good at wireless. I bet the wireless is reliable as shit. Because yeah, I mean, I've totally flown DJI drones. Like you get it in upstate New York where there's not a lot of Wi-Fi interference and you're definitely breaking a mile before you start mm. to get breakups. And it's yeah. like, there's tech in that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to see and hear these in the field. I'm just trying to figure out if you can... Can you use an external lav mic? Or do no, you just I think the mic clip? is built in. It doesn't you have look to clip like the there's big, an internal. Goofy looking deal to like that. I mean, that's that would be my main sticking point because you. I mean, why why wouldn't they just put a mic input on there if it's not? I'm I'm looking at the product page. I don't see anything that suggests that that's a thing. Like, nope. There's a mic output on the receiver, but there's no mic inputs on the thing. It is designed just to be. Uh, so why would they? Oh do, wait, like, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm looking here at the top. There's two little holes. One of the holes looks like a There's microphone. A the other looks like a little TRS. There's a TRS input on each transmitter for pulling audio from external sources. Oh, okay. So okay. yeah, so yeah, you could also okay. stick so this in a back pocket like and use go- it with a mic. Yeah, you don't have to look like a goober with a little square. I mean, honestly, honestly, I gotta say that's slick as hell because <laughs> I could see like, well, no, like I could see running this in my pocket and I've got the microphone on my chest and then like doing some stupid like. Who here has not broken one of those microphones at some yeah, point in your yeah, life? Sure. And you're like, oh, fuck. All right. Well, I've, I broke that, but I still have the receiver and it's got a built-in microphone and now I can just clip it to my shirt and keep going. Like, yeah, yeah. There it's kind of slick. Yeah, I'm, I'm into that, which is, I'm pretty sure that's pretty much how the, the road system works as yeah. well. So, well, cool. I'm into it. I'm into but I it. think they're taking the same strategy here that Aerie is taking. I think we will see some other DJI, NAB, releases here in two weeks. I don't know exactly what they will be because the camera platform, the 4D is still so much of the attention and heat on DJI. Um, My guess, if I had to guess anything was coming at NAB, is further details on their timecode input-output plate for the 4D because they they need that shit. And then I'm guessing control, like either a new version of the wheels or like other control technology for their gimbals and cameras. Because like they've really like they have some cool shit. They have wheels and they have the Force Go, which you mount to a tripod. But they haven't really updated them in a while, and they're a little pricey. And it seems like I would not be surprised if DJI was like, "Hey, wait a minute!" But now we have this. Well, and I would love to see them port that lidar focusing tech to other stuff. Like I would love a standalone, like follow focus unit. Like they they have that the the, the DJI Focus, but like if they could find some way to. To give me that that lidar tech and like something that I could just attach straight to a you know some some rails like fifteen millimeter rods whatever that would be pretty sick. 
I would, I, that's the kind of stuff I would love to see from them is just further using more of that LiDAR tech and stuff. And then of course the Ronin 5D Pro that can fly, you know, some anamorphic vintage, you know, glass and things like that, you know, three, four pound lenses. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Dude, you're like, you are really killing it in the teeing up the next subject. <laughs> like you are just like, oh yeah. Um, yeah, that one, our that, next one, one, I, that one was unintentional, but I will take every ounce of credit. Yeah, man, just soak it up. You're like, <laughs> I remember doing a job interview once and literally it was almost like the person knew our questions ahead of time because we had like, you know, when you're doing job interviews, you have to ask everyone the same question. And like we had, so we had our little sheets and like literally at the end of every answer, she would like just naturally start talking about the subject <laughs> of the next question. And I was like, are you psychic? This is like, do you, do you have was, someone hide, hiding in the bush over there? What's going yeah, on? Or can you read the reflections of my glasses? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So this is Syrah. Syrah makes a whole bunch of crazy lenses, and they actually make some lenses that you can fly on the 4D, but they just ra- launched some full-frame anamorphic lenses for like a 75 millimeter and a 50 millimeter. Both of them are 1.6X, which you know isn't like a full two-to-one squeeze because our sensors are no longer square. So a quick refresher, you know, older anamorphics were all two-to-one because... If you were shooting a four by three sensor, which is one, three, three to one, and you applied a two X squeeze, you ended up with like roughly 2.66 to one, but we would really frame that to two, three, nine to one for complicated reasons. Nowadays, our sensors are 1.78. And so if you used a two to one squeeze, you'd get 3.5 to one, which is usually way too narrow for most people. So usually what you do when you're shooting on a 16.9 roughly sensor is you use like a one and a, a 1.5 or a 1.6 squeeze. And then you get a really nice 2.4 image out of a 16.9 sensor. So these are both 1x squeeze. They both open to a 2.9, which is pretty good, actually. And, you know, Syrah also makes some anamorphic lenses that are 1.33 in MFT, which you could probably find a way to do an MFT mount on the DJI 4D so you could fly anamorphic on there. These are available in Sony E. So if they hit the weight limit, which is like 1.2 pounds... Sony E is one of the mounts you can get on the 4D, but I am not seeing physical weights in the specs. I'm gonna I'm gonna dig around and see if there's physical mm. weights. Have you shot Syrah anamorphics at all? No, I've I've almost done it a couple of times. For me, the big thing is I I'm if I'm shooting anamorphic, I want I want 2x, especially because I usually shoot on Black Magic and they have that that handy dandy little four by three setting where it you can shoot the 2x and get you know just a, a good two three five. I've almost pulled the trigger on this a few times. The thing for me is I can't tell you how many times I've literally at least three times I've bought, like I've gone down the road. uh, I wanted anamorphic so bad that I went down the road of getting, you know, one of those like vintage projector lens setups where it's like the, the anamorphic projector, like adapter thing. And you, you screw it onto a taking lens. And usually that's like a Helios or like some vintage glass or whatever at Canon FD primes, whatever. And every single time I've ever done it, I'm like, ah, this is just too annoying. Like, and I always, I always keep it. I, I maybe shoot one project on it and then I sell it. And these things are just like right in that same kind of price point where it's like, I keep almost going for it. But for me, the full frame ones are 1.6x, and then they have these other ones that are like 1.3x, which is to me, it's like almost not even worth it at that point, especially because the biggest thing for me is these lenses are known for very, very blue flaring. There's like not a lot of tonality to the flare itself. It's just like very, very J.J. Abrams in your face blue flares. And so if you're into that, if that's what you're trying to get, 
these are sick. And they have a full set of them now. For micro four-third shooters, they have the whole the whole range. And then uh, so far, it looks like for the, uh, the full-frame ones, is it just the 50? 50 and 75 okay. full-frame. I mean, I feel like it's just Komodo is really pushing the RF. But what's funny to me about that is I think the thing that would be exciting to me about this is Komodo actually has usable autofocus. And we're getting into that space where autofocus is becoming like, a fascinating tool. And obviously the 4D, you, you don't need internal motors for autofocus. But I'd yeah. be excited to see Syrah do like, hey, what if we had like a 75 millimeter anamorphic that had autofocus? I mean, it, it's got to head that way, I think. Well, I mean, because that's the thing. I shot a lot of anamorphic back in the day. I lucked into, I had a friend in LA that bought like full set of the Lomo round front anamorphics before the Red <sighs> 1 came out. So oh, it man. was like they were still affordable. And then he had a whole bunch of 35 millimeter packages that mounted to it. So I did a bunch of jobs for a bunch of years that were like 35 anamorphic because I had a guy that could get us a good deal on the package. And, you know, it's legit fucking hard to pull focus on anamorphic. I never did it. My first ACs did it, but I would talk to him about it after. And it's like, you know, the depth of field is curved. It is narrower on the edges than it is in the middle. And it, and it has a curve. Well, and were you, were you shooting at like, what, were you monitoring the squeeze image at that point? Oh yeah. I mean, we were looking at the squeezed image. I had the squeezed image in the viewfinder. We had the squeezed image right. in the standard definition video tap. So it was old school, like pulling focus, like an old school person. And, you know, shooting wide open on a 75 millimeter lens. Like we shot some beautiful stuff with it, but it was more stressful than first ACs are usually used to today. And so, the you know, when I see things like this where I'm like, ooh, $1,500 from Syrah, like it'd be really cool if they would do one that was like $2,500 and had internal motors. Yeah. So that you mounted it in RF on the Komodo, and then you had like the autofocus power of the Komodo, which is not as like good as the 4D autofocus, which is so great, or as good as like, I guess, the FX9 autofocus. But yeah, or drop it in E mount with internal motors so it can be controlled on an FX9. And then anamorphic becomes like a really interesting thing where you're like, oh, it's anamorphic without anamorphic's biggest drawback, which is like the focus is legit hard. Well, and yeah, usually they're like three times the size of these lenses too. But for the thing that's happened, there's something that's happened and it, I, I've really only noticed it in the last few months because I've done a bunch of gigs that I wanted A, to have the gear shipped to where I was going and then B, I wanted to shoot anamorphic, but I wanted something kind of kind of charactery, something with a little bit of, of you know, kind of vintage flair to it. And what I've noticed is all of a sudden, now, when you want to rent anamorphic, let's say through something like Lens Pro to Go or borrow lenses, like Lens Pro to Go used to have a set of Lomo round front anamorphics. Now, all they have is the Atlas Orions and then the Saray, these lenses that we're talking about. And both of those kind of have that, uh, unless you're talking about the Atlas Orion Silver Editions, which are like, oh, those are so nice. Those are like my favorite lenses right now, but it, they cost an obscene amount of money to rent. So it's weird because it used to be like you had a lot more anamorphic options. And then now it's like most rental houses, they're just carrying the Atlas Orions and the Saray anamorphics. And it's, it's kind of just like, if you don't want one or the other, then you have to kind of know a guy, you have to have an anamorphic person who has the, the Loma round fronts or whatever. Um, which, you know, depending on what market you're shooting in, like, you know, I was trying to get anamorphic lenses in Alabama, so I didn't have anyone to go to for anamorphics there. And so, you know, I, I just tried to rent them and 
yeah, it was either Atlas lenses or Surrey lenses. And I ended up shooting on Sigma Cine Primes. <laughs> Which are beautiful. So, yeah, they're, they're, those are great. Yeah. Those are great. But, you know, they, they're anamorphic. They are not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the thing with anamorphic, I mean, the thing with rental houses and anamorphic in general, and, you know, I feel this as a dude who occasionally rents out some of my stuff on ShareGrid. Most of my shit on ShareGrid is weird. Like, I have odd stuff, and I'm like, oh, I'll put this on ShareGrid just sort of as a service for the, uh, like, I don't have, like, a Sony A7S III or something that's going to rent every week. Like, I have, like, strange stuff. So I'm like, oh, I'll put this up, and then, like, once every two years, someone's going to need to rent it, and I'll probably meet someone interesting because they come across some workflow where they need to rent my specific weird thing. But, like, I'm nervous about renting my weird shit because my weird shit is the shit that's going to be the hardest to fix if you break it. And I feel like that's what you run into a lot with rental houses and anamorphic is like Atlas Orion is like, they're not like a mass market manufacturer, but they're making some units. And if what you, you had to send one in for service, there's people there and there's going to be replacement elements and there's going to be like a team. Whereas like Lomo round fronts, you know, you might be able to send them back to TLS in the UK if you got them rehoused there. But, you know, depending upon how it is, you, I don't know. I like, I, I understand. Deal, yeah. I will yeah, say, no, for sure. I will say this. I, had a, I wasn't the DP on this job, but my friend Charlene Wang was DPing a job in North Carolina in 2005. And we rented from Joe Dutton in North Carolina, these beautiful Joe Dutton anamorphics, the X-Tals. And it was one of those things where I was like, you wouldn't think North Carolina would have a beautiful set of anamorphics sitting at the rental house. But there they were. So I, I wonder if there's some secret rental house somewhere in Alabama or Arkansas or Mississippi with like one set of anamorphics on the shelf. Because that's always it's the dream, that or, right? like maybe someone should just make a website of like where to find, you know, legit character uh anamorphics. Um only anamorphics, only streaks, only, only flares. Yeah. Anamorphicmingle.com, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um what is it farmers only? Yeah, farmers only. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, I mean I I would patronize it if that existed. I totally would. I mean, I'm a fan of more weird personality lenses being in the universe. So I'm 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 glad yeah. Sarah is rocking it. Speaking of TLS, as we were a second ago. So TLS, if you don't know them, it's True Lens Services. They're one of the big rehousers of lenses in the world. They're in the UK. If you've thought about buying some Lomo round fronts and you wanted them converted to modern format or like Mamiya lenses or all sorts of other lenses, they are the people that many people turn to. Canon K35s, Canon FDs. Super Baltars, all sorts of stuff. TLS are often the people we think of as like the best of the best in the lens conversion business. And now they have dropped their lenses, the Vegas. So TLS has their own lineup of lenses now, the Vega Primes, which is kind of like, I'm psyched to be seeing them. It's going to be fun. I'm glad they're rolling out. Now, they were originally announced way back at NAB in 2018, but now they're shipping. So I'm going to guess that the pandemic had something to do with the long delay. Probably, yeah. But they're now out in the field. So if TLS isn't a name that's been on your radar, because a lot of times the rehousers don't necessarily get the same respect as the modern manufacturers, because the modern manufacturers will have like a whole marketing budget to roll out. TLS, the Vegas should look pretty sweet. I'm very excited to see them. They're sort of in the seven to eight grand price range per lens, which is sort of an interesting space. Like, there's a lot of lenses in the two to five grand price per lens space, like the Snyders and the Zine CFs and the Sigmas and 
Like there's like, I'm sure four others I'm forgetting right now and I'll get emails from the press people. <laughs> and then there's a whole lot of lenses in the like 20 to $30,000 a lens, like Airy Supremes, Zeiss, no, Airy Signatures, Zeiss Supremes, that kind of party. Though like each one costs more than my car. And it's an interest. there's not a lot of lineups where it's like in the eight grand space. Sort of an interesting space we occupy. Man, I'm looking at, I'm looking at, they have like a little demo video on the website and these look nice. I mean, TLS knows their shit. So yeah. it's, it's certainly not going to be one of those situations where you're like, I, yeah, I would be very surprised if TLS would be willing to go out there, not with like the absolute top ends. Like if they're they gonna look, be doing they it. look kind of um they look like short like they look like they're not gonna be like this one thing I really love is is lenses that you know they're not sticking out from the camera like a whole foot like these look these look like you could you could run a nice compact little rig with them I, I'm, yeah I, I hadn't heard of these yeah well they just they I mean they were one of those things that was like on the floor at NAB I think in 2018 but like this is their real press push I don't think they were given a real press push before that. Right. But yeah, that is actually another good point is that like one of the things like I really love the Zine CFs for that reason, because they're both physically short and sort of compact around. But then the other like amazing lenses that I love so much are the signatures. But if you've shot the signatures, they are physically very long. That is like one of their things is length. And I think part of the length is that they're trying to be tele. I mean, they're almost telecentric, which means that the light rays coming out the back are running nearly parallel, which means the flares should be consistent sensor to sensor. I wonder if, because these are really sort of physically short, I wouldn't say stubby, but they are. Like looking at the picture of that 50 mil, like that's a short little 50 mil. Yeah. Like it's a compact little unit. You could definitely have like, stick that on the front of a V-Raptor and you've got like a tiny little package that's almost in like cannon size. I wonder if there's going to be, I would love, you know, if... It all came together right. I would love to do a test with the Vegas on like four different camera sensors to see if we get really inconsistent flaring from sensor to sensor. Because that's the yeah, worry. That's with actually the not lines. a concept that I've ever really thought much about until you said I, I, you, you'll have to run that word by me again. Tell it. Tell us. So this is a thing that like wasn't a thing until digital. So it used to be that like the way a flare looked was sort of the same film stock to film stock, but because of the way sensors are designed. If the light comes out at an extreme angle from the back of a lens, your lens flares can look wildly different sensor to sensor, which is something that like, I remember I was shooting, I'm just going to throw Snyder under the bus because this is the real story. I was shooting with some Snyder full frames and they had these like horrible chromatic aberrations and flares that were just like fugly. They were not attractive. I did not find them flattering. And I forget what camera I was on, but I was like, this is mysterious. I've got to like chase this down. What's going on here? So I set up a test with a different camera body and I couldn't get it to flare the same way. And I was like, motherfucker. And then, of course, I read all these articles about like, oh, in digital, your flare is different on every sensor because if the light comes out at an extreme angle, depending on how big the pixels are, the light might spread and hit pixels differently. So if the light's coming out at an angle, the red, green, and blue are going to be at different angles from each other. And you're going to see them jump to different sensors and create some flaring issues. So one of the reasons why the signatures are the length they are is they're designed to be almost telecentric, which means the light coming out the back is parallel light. Theoretically, this should make it so that it flares the exact same way on any different sensor because the size of the pixel won't matter. Huh. And that's interesting because, I mean, even just like honestly thinking thinking of it in the context as it not mattering in the film days, like I've always been fascinated by 
film cameras were just more so mechanical devices for running film through them reliably. So a good a good film camera just did a good job at doing that. But like digital cameras be it's such a different thing. Like in it, like the digital camera from camera to camera that's like almost like film stock to film stock. Where it's like, you know, I I I imagine if you were shooting one film stock versus another you'd get it you would get a different flare. Is it is that true? Well, the only thing that could give you a different flare in different film stocks is grain size. So if you switch from like 5201 and then you switch to like 5219 and pushed it two stops, the flare might look a little differently because of that. But yeah. it's not going to be nearly as noticeable as the difference in sensor design and flare, which is like, it's to the point now where like if I'm doing a lens test, like when I did, I'm trying to think of what lens tests. Oh, like last summer I did a lens test of the 0.7 lens from the name Zhangji. Zhangji did that great 0.7, T.7, 50 millimeter. And so, you know, I was like, well, if I'm doing a lens test, it doesn't feel fair in digital to do a lens test tonight unless I test at least four different cameras. So I see what the flare is like in different sensors. So we did like Komodo, Blackmagic, A7S, and C70 or something. Because I was like, I, I like that. Because it is always a dance in digital between the lens and the sensor when you are seeing flaring. Yeah. The signatures are also designed to try and have almost no flaring whatsoever. Because in Aries' opinion, flare looks weird in HDR, and they think that we should minimize flaring in lenses for HDR capture. And I think they're probably right. Like HDR and flare is like a weird interaction where, like, especially if you're like monitoring an SDR on set. So I think that like they don't flare much, and when they do flare, it should flare the same. Even if you took those signatures and you put them on like a Venice, it should be the same flare that you would get out of. Um, there's well, some- and. VFX supervisors don't want flares either anyway. So, you know, modern lenses are trending more and more towards less flaring regardless of HDR or not because they just want to add them in post. Which is why I wonder about them stubby little Vegas. Yeah. Like, are they going to flare a lot? Because one of the things, I mean, obviously coding matters a lot for flare, but I was also under the impression that telecentricity was one of the factors uh, that helped with flare. So it'll be interesting to see what rolls out. All right, enough NAB stuff. We now have an Ask No Film School from Twitter. Raymond K. Hessel asked on Twitter, I saw a movie in the theater recently, and it looked faded like bad projection. But I watched the trailer at home, and it looked great. Is this my theater's Ugh. fault? How much control do the projectionist have? This seems to happen a lot on low and mid-budget films. I would love to hear you discuss this on the No Film School podcast. So I have two separate theories. But Todd, I heard you make a noise. So I kind of want to hear your theories first. Well, I mean, overall, I, this has been def like, I, I've had this happen a lot myself. I mean, for one movies in general are kind of just a little bit more that way to begin with, which is already kind of a gripe of mine about movies these days. It's just the the overall kind of muddiness and the shadows, all that kind of stuff. There's not a lot of contrast these days, but that's a different conversation. Then for a long time, the 3D movies, that whole deal, I don't know if you remember that, but there was a lot of projectionists that were not swapping over the lenses from the 3D system to the, the 2D system, and that would also cause the projection to look a certain way. It would look a little bit less contrasty, whatever. Uh, so just to, just to explain a little bit what was going on, in order to show a film in 3D, you needed to mount a filter in front of the lens that was a variable ND, but the way it would vary its polarization was vertical, horizontal, vertical, horizontal. 
This would make the projection a little dimmer, but would let you use a single projector to show 3D. If you left those filters in front of the lens for a 2D showing, your 2D showing would then look kind of shitty, like darker yep. than was intended by... Because when you're mastering a 3D movie, you're mastering it knowing you're mastering to that darker projection brightness. But when you're mastering a 2D movie, you're mastering it assuming that you're going to have the brighter projector. So I think that like the 3D thing is like a legit thing that I have definitely run into in shit theaters where I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. you didn't change. The, you didn't take off the filters. Yeah. And I mean, when that's happening, I might as well just get up and walk out. Like, I, I can't watch a movie like that. It drives me nuts. But I mean, I think that's kind of gone away. Like, 3D movies are kind of not a thing anymore. Really. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I don't think so. I'm just laughing because like, <laughs> I'm remembering James Cameron being like, by 2020, we're going to be talking about movies that aren't 3D as flatties. That and uh, the the 48 frames per second thing that oh, God. really, really burned out. Yeah, but I don't know what would be causing it now other than just like truly just a lazy project. Like when I was, uh, we saw, what was it? Encanto. It blew my mind. I don't, I still don't really know what happened, but I'm trying to enjoy this movie with my daughter and the the frame extended onto the ceiling <laughs> like they just completely didn't zoom something properly or whatever and so i like we watched the movie i even went and just was like hey you guys need to fix the projector and they're like oh yeah we know so sorry so sorry i, I kept thinking i expected them to fix it or whatever so i don't know i i have like a thing about it's it i'm very very annoyed by this for some reason i think it's just because you know i guess the visual side of things is is my medium and but like, yeah, there, I have very little tolerance for like when you're seeing a movie because that's supposed to be such a perfect viewing experience of the film as a because like I have a projector at home. I, most of the time I can enjoy a movie perfectly well at home. So if I'm spending the money to go to the theater and it's like someone along the, the process, like whether the bulb's going bad or whatever, whatever it is, it's like it drives me nuts. But I can't really theorize as to what the problem could have been for this specific person so i have i have two separate theories first i'm going to start with my theory about projection quality which is going to riff on your theory which is in okay. my experience there's good movie theaters that take this shit for serious in new york city nighthawk and alamo and i'm sure there's another oh uh metrograph like these are places where like it is it is paid attention to uh in la arclight and you're like, I never had a bad projection experience in the entirety of my life in LA going to Arclight. Metrograph, Alamo, and yeah, Nighthawk for sure. in New York have always like provided stellar experiences. But projection is like what happened when we switched from film to digital. Although I had a bad film projection problem once. I went to see Aeon Flux in a second run theater in LA and they showed the reels out of order. And it took me like half the fucking movie to find out why I couldn't <laughs> figure out what the fuck was going on. And then I was like, oh, this is... Oh, oh, you put the, oh. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it was like, it was impressive. I just imagined you like for the first five minutes being like, interesting, interesting. But wow, they do, they, they're just going to start. Really take, they're just gonna, like, <laughs> they're we're just really dropping in here. <laughs> okay. It was like, it was a bold fuck up. But I think <laughs> like when the digital transition happened, I think a lot of people were like, oh, it's as easy as a QuickTime movie. I just press the, and so like, I can just have my high school, like whatever, the same person making concessions go in and hit the button on the projector. But the problem is, is that there's a lot that you have to take care of. Like even that framing thing you're talking about with Encanto, like there's zoom on these projectors where you can zoom it to fit 
different movies are going to be at different aspect ratios. So you're going to have to zoom them differently to fit properly. This is one of the reasons why I always tell students not to make weird sized films. Because if you're trying to be in, you know, I, I made the same mistake on my thesis. I made my thesis in two to one because I was like, fuck it, I don't care. I'm going to make it in two to one. But what I realized when I went to festivals is that meant I was either always programmed, I was harder to program because they'd have a bunch of 185 movies and a bunch of 235 movies in like a short selection. And then they would have to like, in addition to switching the projection from 185 to 235, they'd also have to switch it to two to one for me. So I was like an extra annoying step because I was a weird size. And I wasn't one of the sizes that they probably had built into their presets. Because most projectors probably have a saved 178 and a saved 235 that they're just switching between. So there's all of that. The other thing is that a lot of these projectors don't have one bulb, they have many. So like I, you know, help babysit the projector at the school where I teach. It's a like, you know, it's a DCP projector. It's a big Sony. It has a whole room with its whole own air conditioner. And it has six bulbs, not not one. And, you know, we can bring up the little machine. And like the first, I forget how many hours it is off the top of my head, but like you can see the the life of the bulb and like the color starts to shift around 20% of life left on the bulb. The color's not as good mm-hmm. and we can fix it. We tweak it. We like adjust our LUT to get it. And then we change the bulbs around 10% of life le- left, but we don't take them all the way to blowout. And we keep correcting it as the color shifts over time. My suspicion is that at a good theater, they keep tweaking the color over the life of the bulbs, plural. My guess is that at those shitty theaters, they just plug in the bulbs, run them till they fry, plug in new bulbs, run them till they fry. And I bet they don't even redo the color settings when they put the new bulbs in, which like you should check it then and make sure it works. And that is my suspicion because I've noticed a whole bunch of stuff for the last 20% of a bulb's life, the color can look all over the map. Also, a lot of those projectors will run without all their bulbs in. So... Like if, if it's Friday and a bulb dies, you know, those bulbs aren't at Staples. You're like filling out an order sheet. The bulbs are like yeah. $700 well, a pop. I, I, I remember I worked at an AMC theater when I was in high school. And if the, like it was time to change out a bulb, I remember there was like a specialist, like wearing like a hazmat suit, damn near, who would like come in. It was like this whole deal. And then like, I remember someone saying like, yeah, if he drops that, the whole place will like blow up. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much I don't know how much truth there was to that, but I was just like, "Whoa, that's pretty crazy." Now, but there was definitely not uh, there was definitely not a lot of color science going on up there. That's the thing I do remember. So I will say, on one hand, go to the best theater around you that you possibly can. That is not often the biggest chains. Although sometimes there's an AMC near me with, that I go to when it's like the right kind of blockbuster movie where it's like really like fun, but like mostly try and find a a theater chain where they take it seriously. Cause a lot of them do. Here's my other half of the theory. I wonder, I haven't seen this movie. I'm looking about a little online. I'm not, I don't catch every horror movie. I enjoy some. Ty West seems like an interesting filmmaker. It is entirely possible that that movie looked exactly right in the theater. And that was Ty West's artistic vision where it was supposed to look washed out and like a faded film print because that director had a specific thing about like some 70s movie they loved, and that was the artistic intent. And the reason why the trailer you watched online didn't look the same is because marketing will sometimes color grade a trailer without anyone else's involvement. So like, I know people who have worked in the marketing departments of projects and like been like coloring a trailer four months before picture lock even happened. So the trailer house got the footage and cut the trailer and did the color grade and the person supervising that color grade remotely, of course, 
is like the head of marketing for the studio. The director is not involved. And so the marketing trailer is colored how the marketing department wants it to look as to how they think it will look the best on the internet, which is not always the same vision that the director has. And it's interesting because in your tweet, you said, I've noticed this more on lower budget movies. And this doesn't seem to happen as much on bigger budget movies. And that's what makes me wonder. I mean, A, it's possible the theaters are just paying more attention to the big budget movies, projection settings. But B, it also makes me wonder if like, if you're Chris Nolan, you're going to have the power. And like, I have another friend, a separate friend who works in marketing, who talks all the time about like being on calls with big directors. And like, yeah, Chris Nolan, Michael Bay, Justin Lin, like they get, you know, notes on marketing. Like they get to see trailers and be like, no, that's not actually the vision of this film or that's not what it's fitting. Or like, I don't like this concept, but like, I don't know if Ty West has that power yet. I'm not sure where he is in the arc of power or, you know, everybody always has units of power and where they can use it. And I don't know, maybe Ty West is like, no, it's more important to me that I use this power to make sure that we're getting enough ad spend. And I don't, and I don't want to use the power I have on the trailer look. I don't care what the trailer looks like. I want to make sure they're spending enough money to make sure the trailer gets watched. Who knows what Ty West's strategy is there? But I wonder if it is legitimately just that on smaller movies, marketing is making the trailer look like what they think will look best on the internet, which isn't always going to be the same look as the creative team. Mm. Yep. All very valid points. All right. Well, that's it for the No Film School podcast this week. I'm sure we'll have more NAB rumors and burgling next week. And then in two weeks, it's NAB itself. I don't know. I'm not going to be there. Todd, are you going to be there? Mm, no, don't think so. But I think George is going to be there. So maybe we'll call into George or something. We'll figure it out. There's this new internet thing that we can use to make the podcast. It'd be really fun. Have like a like a reporter in the field. Yeah, vibe. Man. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Uh, you can find me on the internet at charleshane.com. I'm making some YouTube videos lately. Check me out there. I'm also Charles Hain on Twitter and Charles Hain on Instagram. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a lot of movie stuff. It's mostly like lefty politics and bikes. But, you know, maybe you guys are into that too. I know I am. Um, I am Todd Blankenship. You can find me on Instagram at uh, am I a filmmaker as well as YouTube. Oh, and nofilmschool.com is a website where many articles <laughs> exist that are covered in the covering the things we talked about so you guys should check that out <laughs>